welcome to Research Radio, Episode 2. Research Radio is a monthly series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This episode, we speak with Dr. James Anglin about a chapter from the edited book, Child Welfare, Connecting Research, Policy, and Practice. Dr. Anglin's chapter is entitled, Making Group Home Care a Positive Alternative, Not the Last Resort. I'm your host, Matthew Hollingshead. Uh, I'm a full professor at the School of Child and Youth Care at the University of Victoria on the tip of southern Vancouver Island. Uh, over my term at UVic, I've been the director of the School of Child and Youth Care and also a graduate advisor in the school. At the university level, I've served as associate vice president academic for five years and also as director of international affairs for eight years. So I have a strong interest in global perspectives and particularly in the evolution of child and youth care work, including residential care, both from a historical perspective as well as an international perspective. Can you describe uh, very briefly the research that you're going to be talking about today? Yeah, so what I'd like to talk about is uh, a couple of things. Um, my chapter in the text edited by Kufelt and McKenzie, a book called Child Welfare, Connecting Research, Policy, and Practice, which I think is an excellent overview of child welfare in Canada. My own particular chapter is called Making Group Home Care a Positive Alternative, Not the Last Resort. Uh, and it's part of my research into group home care over a number of years. And I published a book in 2002 called Pain, Normality, and the Struggle for Congruence. It's an awkward title, but I'll explain it a little bit later. And the subtitle is Reinterpreting Residential Care for Children and Youth. And I guess lastly, most recently, I've completed some research on the implementation of a new program model for residential care called the CARE model uh, developed by Cornell University. And if people are interested in reading more about that model, which is based in part on my own research, uh, the book is called Children and Residential Experiences, Creating Conditions for Change, and it's published by the Child Welfare League of America. Okay, so it sounds like a lot of your work has, uh, or more recent work at least, is focused on residential care and group care. What, uh, what is it that, that kind of drives you to study this topic? Where does that interest come from? Well, I began my career actually as a child care counselor uh, in British Columbia at what was called the British Columbia Youth Development Center, uh, and it's often referred to as the Maples, and it's in Burnaby, a suburb of Vancouver. And I had never really worked with children nor really studied children when I was hired there, but I had done some work in Gestalt psychology, and I think the director there wanted to bring that perspective into the program at the uh, Maples. So that was how I started, and uh, what happened was I very quickly became hooked by the challenges that the young people were offering. These were highly traumatized young people. Many of them had been abused and many sexually abused, although we didn't really understand that fully at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, But just the way that they behaved and reacted and interacted uh, challenged me to consider my own beliefs and values and upbringing and what I thought about uh, behavior and uh, social mores and all the rest of it. So that was how I got hooked in child and youth care. And then I met my wife there. She was also a child care worker at the Maples, and we moved to Victoria. And, of course, the skills that I had were child and youth work skills developed at the Maples. So 
I ended up being hired uh, to uh, design and run a group home for six young people. And these mm-hmm. were these were young people who were either, the next step was either to go to a mental health center like the Maples or to a correctional facility. So their behavior was really challenging people in the community. They couldn't live at home, so they needed a, a fairly intensive staff resource. And I worked 100-hour shifts um, and went home and collapsed for 24 hours after that. It wasn't really a sustainable model, but I, right. le- I learned a great deal about how to how to live with kids and how to you know how to understand their needs and how to begin to help them to function within the community you know in particular where they didn't have their own family as a strong resource although we kept as much family contact as possible um, so that's that's how I started out so uh, I was really very much hooked into child and youth work not having really understood that that field existed before I started my first job then over time, I moved into a. I went back to graduate school to get more credentials in order to to look at having different positions within the system, and moved to Ottawa where I worked in social policy, and then to Toronto where I worked in uh, management in the children's services division, as it was called at that time. Finally, came back to to beautiful British Columbia where I joined the faculty at the School of Child and Youth Care. So it sounds like your early work has really given you a lot of. Um a lot of fodder to chew on over the years as you've as you've uh, moved around and done research. Well, what happened was after a number of years at the school and you know learning the ropes and getting my feet on on the ground, I had mm-hmm. a, an opportunity to take a sabbatical and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do by way of research. And I thought back to my early days in in residential care and I really wondered. I'd done the best I could to work with kids in a group home situation, but I wondered, is this really a good service for children? And if so, how does it work when it's done well? So I I decided to actually do a what's called a grounded theory study to try and understand what do good homes do um, and when they work. And I very quickly learned from the young people themselves that they did need group homes. Many of them couldn't live in foster care or couldn't live in their own families because it was too intimate and it was a source of pain for them. And they really needed a staff-structured group home in order to begin to address some of the psycho-emotional pain that they were suffering from. So the research convinced me that, first of all, residential care is important, and second of all, we need to use it when it's required and not after 20 or 30 failed foster homes. And so a lot of my research and the chapter in the book on child welfare is really trying to get people to see and understand how group home and residential care can be used effectively and not to wait until everything else has failed because sometimes that creates even more pain for the young person and also for many of the foster families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The question of uh, is this a good model I think is one that a lot of practitioners and agencies are are struggling with now and have been struggling with for a while. So this might be a good time to ask you about some of the, maybe like three or four of the key findings from your research that you found, some of the big messages that you want to share with people. Sure, and and I think uh, one of the most important things I realized was that all of the children in the residential programs I studied were in deep and profound pain, psycho-emotional pain, and they'd all suffered trauma. And yet many of the programs were not really engaging them around their trauma issues. They were much more concerned with 
feeding them, getting them to school, uh, keeping them engaged in sports or community activities, connecting with their families. But what I heard from the young people themselves was, you know, they, they're they they're caring for me well here, but they're not helping me deal with my stuff. I remember that one young person saying it that way. They're not helping me deal with my stuff. And mm-hmm. I didn't really have to know what his stuff was to understand that it was actually that, the effects of trauma, and that he still was, was you know, not able to, to do the things he wanted to do because this pain was just so pronounced and it got triggered so easily, whether it was at school or in the group home or with his family. So I think the first thing that I realized was we have to be dealing with the pain that children are experiencing, and I even coined the term pain-based behavior to to try and encourage people to not just talk about maladjusted children or delinquent children or acting out behavior, but in fact to understand that problematic behavior as pain-based behavior. How do we actually not react to the pain but respond to what underlies that pain and how this child needs to begin to come to terms with with the history that they bring with them? So you're interested in getting to the to the root of absolutely. Of the I mean, you know, if they're going to be in an expensive and intensive service such as residential care, we've really got to be dealing with what residential care is best able to do, and what it's best able to do is to create that structured, safe environment within which kids can really start to let go of their defenses and begin to engage with skilled adults about how they can get their lives back on track. So that that's very fundamental. I think the second thing, and that's also in the title of the book, is the importance of congruence. I think good programs have a fairly high degree of congruence across the entire agency, uh, from the executive director to the leadership team, the supervisors, the line workers. And what I discovered was whatever it is that guides them, Whatever it is they believe and that they act on is going to filter right down to the child and their family. And I have examples in my book about how that actually happens. And so I think a good agency is one that really starts at the top and really tries to articulate exactly what it believes, what it understands the issues they're dealing with to be, and how they can effectively respond to these young people. So, right. that's, so when you say congruence, you mean um, kind of um, what I mean consistency and message? Within each level of the home and across the levels of the home, there's a commonality or a coherence. There, there are similar beliefs and values that are driving the decisions that are being made. So okay. to give you an example, if you want people to respond effectively to the struggles that children are having with their with their development, you know, where they're stuck in in certain areas of their uh, personal development, whether it's emotional or cognitive or social. We also have to respond well to the workers who are struggling with parallel issues of learning how to work with kids, learning how to deal with some of their own issues that perhaps were unresolved in the past. So that the agency needs to actually treat the workers and the supervisors need to work with their workers in a very parallel way that they want the workers to deal with the children. So there's a there's a respect, an understanding of, of a developmental process, and a provision of support as well as appropriate challenge. Because in an agency, everybody needs to continue to grow. And what I also discovered was the the senior management has to grow in terms of its understanding of its role as managers. 
and how you create an organization, a true holding organization, that actually creates the environment within which everybody can do their best work. And that's not just the children growing, but also the staff and the supervisors uh, and everyone. Um, in large agencies where they have cooks and drivers, uh, those people need to also understand what the purpose of the agency is and to be congruent in terms of supporting each other and the, and the children. Uh, so, so really it's a question of, of culture, I guess. It very much. You've hit the nail on the head. In fact, hmm. in management, they talk these days, uh, they have a phrase that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what what that means, I think Peter Drucker was the one that, that popularized that. Uh, he's a well-known guru in the management area. But I think that also applies in social service work, in, in, uh, in group homes, that if you bring a worker in who's highly skilled and has the right values but comes into an organization that's not working that way, they cannot work effectively and they, you cannot expect them to change or transform the agency. The people in the leadership positions have to take this on and have to have to lead. They have to create the organization and support the workers in this process. So, so absolutely right. I think what's grown out of my research is is a more much more focus on the culture of the organization rather than simply the training of the workers. So those are two of the major uh, areas. I, I guess the third one would be. It's a bit of a paradox. A group home program or a residential program is a bit of a paradox because they're very artificial environments. They're not a normal place for kids to grow up in, and yet one of their strengths is that they can help children who are traumatized and who are struggling to develop, to begin to develop at least, a sense of normality. So it's a very artificial or, or non-normal situation but with workers who are skilled and in a, an environment that is safe, children and young people, adolescents, can begin to experience things that perhaps they haven't in their own home. They can experience themselves as competent. They can experience themselves as, as valued. They can experience even a sense of belonging to a place, uh, feeling um, that they have relationships that are caring, uh, begin to see how adults can live with each other, um, without uh, dysfunction. And, and one story that I remember particularly was this young person when I asked him, what made the difference in the group home? Because, you know, two years later, he was living on his own and doing quite well. And he mm -hmm. said, well, you know, I came down one morning and there was a woman and a man on staff and they were arguing. And he said, I stood there and watched them. And he said, I had never in my life seen a man and a woman argue without fighting, without physical violence. And right. he said, I suddenly realized that there was a different way. And and it took him a while, you know, it took him probably a year or two before he started to act on that and he started to realize he wanted to be like like those workers. He didn't want to be the way his family had been. But he didn't even know that was possible until they came mm -hmm. to the group home. So I guess the, the third point would be workers in homes and staff in homes, including administrators, won't really know which moments make the difference for the children in care. But I think our challenge is to create as many moments of positive interaction and opening up new ways of seeing the world that are positive for these young people. And we really don't know which ones are going to stick and which ones are actually going to make a difference. But I think the more we do that, 
the more uh, likelihood that these young people are going to actually learn the things they need to learn and to respond differently to to the things that they uh, grew up with. That's very interesting. And the way that you describe um, group homes makes it sound like they have a lot of value and a lot of rich, fertile ground for really providing uh, youth with, with the kind of support that they need. But there's also, I sense that there's... Um, there's a bit of a group of have a bit of a bad rap in in Canada and maybe maybe throughout uh, different parts of the world. I'm wondering why do you think that there those two forces exist? On the one hand, this this um, the sense they can do a lot of good, and on the other hand, the kind of public image that they have. Right. Well, I think the reality is when they work well, they can be very powerfully positive, and when they don't work well, they can be very dangerous. So mm-hmm. that it is it is a and that's one reason why I've spent so much time trying to understand them because I I think they're very uh, difficult to operate and very challenging to create. And so what I would say is that a home needs to have a very clearly articulated set of principles that guide its functioning. And what I find is a lot of the homes that aren't working well don't have a clear positive philosophy about child development and how one cares for children and helps helps them to develop. So I think it's critical that a program have a clear program model that everybody buys into. So it's not just Jim doing what he thinks he wants to do on shift and then Matt comes in and does what he thinks, you know, kids need and that mm-hmm. there's no consistency or coherence to to what they're doing and it's not necessarily grounded in good developmental principles in the child's best interest. So what my work has led to through some involvement of Cornell University is the development of a program model that we call the CARE model. And what we tried to do is to build in the results of my research and also the the best practices that we could find in the literature of child and youth care over the last 50 to 100 years. And so we've put that together in such a way that we believe that it's promising in terms of helping a staff to focus on the right things in care and to uh, eliminate those situations that actually lead to bad practices and lead to harm uh, for children. And, and yes, there has been um, a lot of bad press around group care and, and certainly the large institutions that became very technologized or it became very inhuman. You know, we all know about Mm -hmm. the large orphanages that have happened in Eastern Europe, for example, where kids hardly got any personal interaction with caring human beings. We know that that's very dangerous and that's very detrimental to the best interests of children. Uh, But what I've been focusing on are the smaller, more community-based homes, which tend to be what people are moving towards in North America, but also around the world. I think a larger institution can also be humanized. It's more challenging. Um, um, and I, and this is something I think we're learning because even the care model which we developed out of the experience with child welfare agencies is now being applied in some correctional facilities. And it'll be very interesting to see if, if, if a group who takes on this kind of program orientation can do more effective work even in a a, you know, an incarceration situation, which is uh, mm-hmm. quite challenging. We have to be really careful in how we provide group care, and we and that's that's what my research is all about: is what makes a difference in a positive way, and how do we avoid the negatives that have happened and that should not happen. All right.
So maybe then we can move on to the last question, which is just, um, can you tell us a bit about some of the more tangible outcomes of your research? And maybe in ways that you've, maybe stories you've heard about how it's affected um, the lives of practitioners or, or, or of kids who are living in, in some of the some of the centers where where the care model is is being sure, used. Sure. Yeah, I think the major the major outcome of the research has been the development of the care program model, and I can't take credit for that. It's my colleagues at the at Cornell University, led by Martha Holden, and there is a book if people want to read about it. Um, I'm not sure if I gave the title earlier, but it's Children and Residential Experiences Through the Child Welfare League. I think I did mention it. Um, and that outlines the, the program model that has been created. Um, so that has been a major development, and I also have to give credit to the South Carolina Association of Residential Facilities because they they are the ones who asked for this program model to be developed. And it's now being implemented in 40 agencies in six different countries. So we're doing research on it. We would like to actually do a rigorous evaluation so that we can say at some point that either this is or isn't an evidence-based practice because that's a big push for funders. They all Mm -hmm. want agencies to be using evidence-based practice, and there isn't a lot out there. There are a few models in residential care that have... Uh, are, are classed as promising practices, but there really isn't very much that has rigorous evidence yet. So we're working towards that over a period of 10 or 15 years uh, because it's important that that we demonstrate that this is more effective perhaps than, than other ways that people have been doing things. So I guess it's the, it's, it's the dissemination of, of ideas that, that has been particularly um, exciting for me and quite surprising, um, you know, that, that in fact some of these ideas have made, seem to have made a significant difference to how people think about residential care. And not only that, more importantly, how they do residential care. So I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll round off with a story from a recent conference I was at. Sure. There were six directors who were on a panel who were all implementing the care program model. And it was astounding to me how much they had developed their principles and how they developed different ways in their agency. They were supporting their staff. They were changing their intake practices. They were changing their hiring practices, all to align, to be congruent with what they thought needed to happen for the children. And I I took the microphone to kind of congratulate them and acknowledge what they'd done, and I broke out in tears. I mean, it was quite embarrassing. Here were like three or four hundred people uh-huh. watching me cry. But I very quickly pulled myself together and I said, I want to tell you what just happened. I was starting to acknowledge what you were doing. And what I remembered were the young people in my own research 10 years ago who said, so what you want to do is make these homes better for other kids. Okay, if that's what you want to do, then I'm happy to talk to you because I think that's important. And I just wished that the children who I'd interviewed in my research could have sat there and heard the difference that what they had to tell me was making to other kids around the world. So, you know, that was quite overwhelming to realize that, you know, a few children sharing their deepest experiences, trusting me to do something useful with it, um, would have no idea that actually agencies around the world were doing things differently because of them. So... 
And it's not only the children, of course, the workers who shared with me also, but I was particularly at that moment thinking of those children Mm -hmm. who, you know, sat down with this stranger and opened their hearts to me um, because they they felt it was important that other children... It's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of experiences that keep you going for years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that's one that, that really, you know, after 10 or 15 years, here I was you know, going back and revisiting those experiences. So they're quite powerful. I mean, research in residential care is just as powerful as doing residential care because you sure. get to experience those children's pain and you get to experience the workers' struggles and you feel a sense of responsibility to articulate what you're learning from those uh, from those experiences. Right. So, well, yeah. thank you so much for, for sharing all that today. Well, thank you. And, be, you know, I, I guess I want to round off by saying, you know, being a researcher in child and youth care work can be a very exciting and rewarding um, occupation. It takes many years to develop the skills and to go through the education. But if, if anyone listening is thinking about a, a long-term career in child and youth work, there are many different roles. And we need policymakers, we need managers, as well as line workers, and we also need researchers. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about my own research because it's been something, you know, far more powerful and far more uh, rewarding than I ever dreamed it could be. You've been listening to Research Radio, Episode 2, a conversation with Dr. James Anglin. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Part EIP. That's P A R T E I P. Thanks for listening.